0: Let's open in a, a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Father, how we we praise you, we thank you, Lord, we, we look to you in expectation and welcome and ask your Holy Spirit to be with us in this time to reveal to us the truth of your word, to minister to us the, the person, the reality, the joy, the satisfaction of Christ. And, I pray Lord you'd give us all ears to hear speaker included to hear what you have to say and I pray that these words the truth that that is in your word father would find residence in our hearts as as your children as individual worshipers of the triune god but father also as members of your body as one another in christ that you might mature and grow this body of believers into the glorious splendor and gracious hope of your bride that will be revealed that you're coming so father use us use me and be glorified in all that is said today in Jesus holy name amen I first want to just stop and say a great thank you um, to the Lord for bringing Peggy and I to this body um, it's been, a blessing. I pray it's been a mutual blessing and encouragement. I've never truly—I don't—I don't say this flippantly. I've never been with a group of, of believers, brothers and sisters, who've had such a hunger and a desire for the Lord, and a thirsting to pursue and know Him, and to have such a loving, welcoming reality uh, from our first day. And I'm going to take a moment to kind of embarrass my wife too a little bit, but I'm thank the Lord for. <laughs> bringing her into my life 33 years ago yesterday. And so it's been a a wonderful ride. (laughs) But I'm thankful for that. Um, And finally, this is a very unexpected privilege, and I don't use that word lightly, a privilege to open God's word with you. So with that, let's dig in. Um, We're going to be studying, obviously, Not the continuation of tongues. (laughs) Well, pronouncing that might sound like tongues a little bit. But we're going to open up the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. That's the last, next to the last book in the Bible. And to start off today, I'd like to read all 25 verses just to give us an overview, an idea of what Jude is saying to the church in this time and to us. Because it's very relevant God's word is transcendent. It's not limited to a certain point in time, but it speaks throughout all the ages. So with that, let's read Jude. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them Since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you, without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without, tru- without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars from who- for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are, the, are grumblers finding fault following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit but you beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting anxiously for the mercy of our lord jesus christ to eternal life and have mercy on some who are doubting save others snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear hating even the garment polluted by the flesh Except for today. How many, how many of you have read Jude recently? All the way through? I know Brother Ryan. Thank <laughs> you. Have any of you studied it in depth? All right, amen. Does anything stand out to you in this first initial reading? Anything unusual, different comes to mind? Any words he uses? Enoch? writing about Moses and Michael wrestling over the dead. Yeah, yeah. The word these and ungodly, we'll get into that later. He seems to have a pattern of words. He loves triplets. So a little indication, we'll get into that later. But it is a a, a book of great warning and encouragement. And a lot of the commentators, it was interesting to find out that most of them referred to this as the most neglected book in the Bible. You know, maybe because of its brevity or its topics or how strange it was. But Jane Jude is, is addressing some real dangers that have crept into the church here. And in Second Peter, we also have book with a book with a similar passage or p- similar message. Both contain very pertinent and transcendent warnings to the believers about the dangers of false teachers entering the church. Along with that, the exhortations on the precious love and the power that God has in keeping his children. And that's my prayer as we, we go into this short letter over the next three weeks, that the Lord will have much to say to us about this. But before we get into the details of the scripture, I want to kind of give, a, as we've been studying biblical theology, a little bit of, of grammatical, historical background, how we should look at this, this book because of its little bit unusual nature that even in, in all 66 books that we have here as inspired Word of God, there's times when God and in his infinite wisdom determined not to give us details about exact dates or exact audiences or where it was written or to who it was written to. But we can look at, at local text in a greater context, like I mentioned in Second Peter, to gain some of the insights and times in this situation. Not so much just to know the minute details, and not so much that they're gonna affect the, the redemptive theme or the purpose of the letter, but they'll give us an understanding as, as people in this day and age to understand what they were going through, what they were influenced by in their society, what they were seeing, and we can glean that from some of these, these times and, and locations. So we know that Peter, fr- from this particular time in history, that Second Peter was written about the end of the AD 60 period, 64 to 65. And we know that Jude from 1 Corinthians 9.5 was an itinerant preacher. Then we can understand that the audience that he was addressing was likely a Jewish Christian church or several smaller churches within an area, but they were steeped in a Greco-Roman society. They're heavily influenced by the Greek and Roman culture and philosophy. They were mainly Hellenistic Jews. And this letter from what we can see in, in Jude's endearing terms and how he wrote to these believers, that he wasn't writing to the Catholic Church or to a large group, but to a local set of believers, assembly of believers. And as I mentioned, in, in explaining the scriptures, is always a desire to, to render the text into a modern language and understanding so that we'll understand that influence that it had on the historical reader is into our modern time as well. As I mentioned, this isn't to to change the meaning or the redemptive theme in in the word and it's not creating a new translation, but it's a meaning of just providing a fuller understanding of God's word. However, it is still God's word alone that saves us and transforms us. So let's put this into practice. Jude. He gives us a very clear introduction, Jude, a bondservant or better slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. But which Jude is this? Does anybody know how many Judes there are in the New Testament? Okay, I'll give you a clue. Jude is our our English rendering. It's only found in Jude 1.1 of the word Judas, Iudas in Greek, which is 43 times in the New Testament either as Judas or Judah, which actually means to praise. So what I've done here, I want to put in, and if you can remember, help me remember all the different Judases in the New Testament, we'll categorize them as possible or improbable writers for Jude. What's the first Judas you can think of? There you go. And that's another reason why we use the name Jude for this. So I'm going to put him in the minus column. He's likely not the author of this book. (laughs) Any other Judas you know of? Pardon? Right, Judas, son of James, right? Yep, he was actually an apostle. And he's found in Luke 6.16 and also mentioned in Acts 1.13. Anyone else? Exactly. We'll put him in the plus kind, and that's mentioned in Mark six three. Anybody else? Yeah, that's going to be the same same as Judas of James or son of James. Yeah. There's Judas Barsabbas. Anybody know who he is? He was a prophet in the early church. And you find him in Acts 15, 22, 27, and 32. There's also Judas the Galilean. There's a reason I'm doing all this. I just don't, not to have fun on the blackboard. He wasn't probable. He was a revolutionary that was mentioned in Acts 5. Does anybody know the sixth Judas? And I'll put him over here, but I'll just give you the scripture. You can look it up later. Acts 9-11. An important Jude, but not mentioned. So anyone in the plus column, a good possibility of writing this, this epistle, this letter, But Jude says he starts out bondservant or slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So what doesn't Jude say about himself in this first verse? That, something else too. Think of Peter and Paul when they say apostle, exactly. So we are missing the word apostle. And any Christian could rightly claim to be a slave of Christ, any of these writers, as we all could as well. But Jude specifically mentions that he's the brother of James, which is Adelphos, which means a male child of the same mother or same womb. So that is a clear indication here of his identity and what he's given here. Because what does James one one say too? James, a slave of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, no mention of apostleship. No mention of brotherhood or half-brother of Christ. So we remember, too, in in Matthew 13, 55 and Mark 6, 3, what do the people of Nazareth say about them? Isn't this... Exactly. Aren't these the mother called Mary and the sons, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas... <clears throat> and what else does the gospel tell us about Jude and James and the rest of his family in Mark 3, right after they call, Jesus called the 12? They go back. Jesus goes back to his hometown, and what do they say about him? He's beside himself. He's crazy. He's lost his senses. He's, he's basically schizophrenic, and they actually come to try to take him away. So according to John 5, they grew up not even believing in Christ. His brothers didn't believe in him. So what happened? Well, if you look at Acts 1.14, it introduces us that right after the resurrection, the Lord's mother and brothers were in the upper room with the disciples waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And later on in 1 Corinthians 15.7, Paul tells us that Jesus met James specifically before he met with the apostles after the resurrection. I always wonder, just kind of a side note there, what that encounter must have been like for James, the oldest of the brothers in the family, to meet his resurrected elder brother now in glory, ready to return to the Father. So just something to ponder over sometimes. So if Jude and James and possibly his other brothers believed on the Lord after his resurrection, then why didn't Jude say, I'm the brother of Christ? Or what is he saying by not saying that? Clement of Alexandria wrote that Jude may have avoided such a title as brother of the Lord in favor of a title which focused on a point of much greater significance for his ministry and his right to address these Christians, a slave of Jesus Christ, because there's no other title greater than this for for any believer to bear. And for Jude, there was no point in claiming his physical relationship or familial relationship that didn't bring him any spiritual benefit or special authority. But stating this submission to Christ as his slave and associating himself with his prominent brother, the church, establishes his greater authority and makes it clear that he is a messenger of special spiritual importance. But if we stop and just consider this phrase further, slave of Christ, slave of Jesus Christ. Slavery is not a popular term to mention these days, past history in our country and other countries. But if we look at the Greek word doulos, it carries some very heavy connotations of slavery, which had a big impact on the people in Jude's day. Who else do we know of in the Old Testament that was a servant or slave of the Lord or Yahweh? Moses, David, Joshua. And now Jude uses the phrase servant or slave, but now he uses the name and person of Jesus Christ rather than Yahweh or God. And in doing this, he communicates something incredibly important about Jesus Christ, that he now, he now has this relationship with Christ that this monotheistic people the Jewish people had before in their relationship with God himself and it's intensified I think even further you consider that Jude grew up in the same household with Jesus but now he calls him Lord and master he's his slave so now let's continue on let's ask the questions when where to whom type questions of where this is written so we've determined the author is Jude the brother of Je- half-brother of Jesus, but a slave of Jesus Christ, and brother James. But the context of this letter, as we'll read on and study in the coming weeks, is dealing with false teachers. And their, their teaching is more of an early libertine lifestyle that was polluting the church. And the one aspect of this timing we can see when we compare Second Peter Chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, but also specifically Second Peter 3.3, 3, where this has a little bit more fruitful meaning. Second Peter was written, as I mentioned, near the end of Peter's life when he was in Rome under Nero around AD 64-65. But in Second Peter 3.3, 3, it says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following after their own evil desires now when you look in the comparative passage in Jude 17 and 18 it says but dear friends remember what the Apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold they said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow after their own ungodly desires so this reference and language used by Jude about the words of the Apostles mentioned in 2nd Peter gives us an indication that Jude was probably written sometime after 2 Peter, that Jude gleaned from his writings, that he had referenced his writings. It also tells us that the apostolic age was coming to a close, except for John, who was probably at this time on the Isle of Patmos or in the western parts of Asia Minor. The end of the apostolic age was coming to a close. So this gives us kind of an idea on the timing of this letter. And as the audience I mentioned earlier was due to Jude's endearing terms about the the saints he was writing to, was a smaller group, and we don't know where exactly. Um, Because he was an itinerant preacher, it could have been any of the churches that he helped establish or nurture or teach at, but the endearing terms give us that idea. So Jude, the author of this letter, the half-brother of Christ, And we know it's written sometime near the end of the apostolic age, around A.D. 65 to 70. I know that's not real exact, but that's what's good. Okay, any questions so far? Have I gone down too many rabbit trails? (laughs) All right, let's continue on in his introduction here. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, Jude addresses his reader specifically as the called. Toskletos doesn't necessarily mean, as some had said incorrectly, as this was just God's invitation. The invitation of the gospel goes out to all, but this Toskletos means a specific calling. He does, God doesn't merely invite believers to be his own. <clears throat> They're powerfully and inevitably brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And the effective call is only extended to some, but it's always successful because of God's doing and God's power. And all those who are called will become believers in Jesus Christ. And this is why Jude uses two specific participles here, beloved and kept, to modify this term called in the letter. He's specifically identifying those to whom he is writing and to give these particular readers some sharp warnings. But Jude is stressing here God's supernatural power in this work of calling them into the intimacy and to the love of God. And Jude's not emphasizing just the source of love that we experience by saying God the Father loves us, but rather he's he's in the context it's the love this love of God is the product of us being in God of being in fellowship with God the Father and those who are the called also belong to the people of God and enjoy that experience that reality of God's constant love for us and Jude's final phrase of kept for Jesus Christ is actually better rendered kept by Jesus Christ for the final salvation and in the Greek here, it uses what's called a dative of agency, which is this is found in Christ himself. And that so actually supports both terms as being, being in, in symmetry, loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And the emphasis here is that those whom God has called to himself are loved by him and kept by Christ until that day of salvation. And this is the great work, as I've said, the great work of grace from God that will sustain all true believers until the end. Even through this life of temptations, trials, and onslaughts, and persecutions, this emphasis on God's grace and the keeping us does not negate the believer's responsibility. As we'll see later in verse 21, nowhere does God's grace promote passivity or laxity but rather it should stir all saints to a concerted action and obedience through faith and good works. And what Jude has said here in describing his readers as being kept for by Jesus Christ is precisely what Jesus prayed for in John 17. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Any questions so far? Stop me, trip me up, engage me, I'm here. (laughs) All right, Jude continues now in verse two. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. This is a common greeting of the saints, writing the epistles Peter and Paul. They open their letters with the same type of blessings and encouragement. But in this instance, Jude is, is praying for their edification and their comfort. And this is where he begins using his his triplets, his groups of threes, that we're going to see throughout this letter. And it has some significance. kind of gives us some insight into some his Trinitarian thought, his Trinitarian belief of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But I won't get into that yet. But Jude varies his greeting slightly. He doesn't use the word grace, although mercy here does encompass and convey the fullness and the idea of grace in its meaning. And Jude doesn't specify the source of this mercy, peace and love, but God is clearly in view here. And we shouldn't think that Jude has some low Christology in his beliefs, for he's already noted in first verse that he's a slave exalting Christ's authority and the authority in this message. But this brief prayer and greeting to these saints is also anticipatory of what's coming in the rest of this theme. Because Jude prays for mercy because his readers would not only be able, not only only for his readers to be able to resist these opponents of God's grace by God's mercy, but they needed to experience God's mercy so they could extend the same to those who've been caught up and captivated by these intruders. Jude also prays for peace these saints needed peace not only a reminder of their peace with god <clears throat> excuse me but because there was divisions already occurring within the church because of these infiltrators they were stirring up strife and division and grumbling wherever they went and jude also prays for love so that these hearers to be instilled in these hearers, because the intruders, they only cared about themselves. They were abusing the purpose of the love feast and the communion gatherings and creating a lot of stress in the church. And Jude prayed as we should pray for one another. The saints need God's mercy, peace, and love. Now in verses three and four is where Jude dives right into the heart of the matter. This is the theme of the letter. And he was wanting, he intended initially to write to them about their common salvation, a remembrance, an exposition of the doctrines of grace, maybe addressing some of the reminders of Christ and the great work of redemption. But he was providentially hindered and a sudden interruption of his intended writings because of these adversaries coming in the church. This is a critical matter. And we see this urgency, we can, we can hear his urgency by the way he uses right twice in this passage. I was going to write you about this, but I needed to write you about this because of such an urgency of the church being attacked. And his appeal here, his purpose, is for the saints to contend. Not so much to go after those who are teaching false, to go after their doctrines to refute them, but to contend for the saints, to contend for the faith that had been passed down from the apostles. When you hear the word contend, especially something like this passage, what do you think of? Boxing. <laughs> exactly. Striving. Paul talks also about in, in 925 about the competing in the race, the going after with all your effort the games the self-control that's involved and the purpose is to apprehend and to compete for a specific achievement it's a struggle in fact the words here in the greek mean struggle struggle you know contend earnestly struggle struggle it's it's a square root of struggle this is something we need to strive for and what is this striving for what does it look like for us and for them it's, it's a continuation, as, as Ryan and I have talked, and others, that it's, it's a preaching the gospel to yourself. It's a holding to the truths of, of God's grace and his work in Christ. It's been passed down. I was thinking of, of 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks in 1 Corinthians fifteen one to 8, that it's, it is basically the, the truth of God's work in Christ passed down to us. But it's, it's critical here that we understand what, what Jude is talking about when he says faith, is that just a belief or a conviction? I I've, I need to strive for my faith in faith type thing? Or does it have a broader, greater contextual meaning in what he's saying here? Yeah, yeah. but what does he mean by faith? Just... that's the type of thing he's talking about a saving faith. Exactly. Exactly. <coughs> this is what Paul talked about too as actually I'm going to get into that here a little bit later. Well, then, no, yes. I, to that is, I think that also trying to all believers striving for the of Christ. <laughs> that is part of it. Yeah. Yep. That is part of it. But what what Paul talks about, too, in the meaning of faith is more the traditional teachings, the message of the gospel, as you all said. The faith of these saints, for these saints, was both the Old Testament truths and the more current teachings of the apostles. But it simply describes what true Christians believe about Christ's righteous life, his atoning work, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit salvation by grace, and ultimately the return of Christ, our our final glory. And this faith, the reason for his writing, as I said, has come under attack, and and this is the reason for his exhortation. And the why is because his very derogatory use of the words certain men, certain persons, they've come in, Basically, the, the literal rendering here means they've wormed their way in to pursue their agenda by stealth. Coming in, not only just talking about things, but their whole life was a testimony of sexual perversion, of drunkenness. But proclaiming in their words, in their speech, in their beliefs to be one of Christ's own. False convert, False converts. And this verb that that Jude uses here gives a clear indication of their hidden character. But their actions, as I said, were not hidden from the readers readers by any means. And these are the ones that Christ talked about in Matthew 7. These are the wolves in sheep's clothing. These are the tares that are sown among the weak. And Jude, in his opinion of these guys, gives four statements, four identifying marks. And the first of which confirms God is going to certainly judge these men because he says his judgment was predicted, marked out for this condemnation long ago, long beforehand. And the other three are the why God is going to judge them because they've turned God's grace into an opportunity for licentiousness. They use his grace for a license to sin. And what it, what it talks about here in the Greek is that this judgment for them was prescripted, <clears throat> that they, this, these adversaries had not taken God by surprise. This prescripted means it was foreknown from the beginning, and it follows that as a consequence, God knew they were going to appear on the scene. And this ties in so well to Proverbs sixteen four, that the Lord has made everything for his purpose even the wicked for the day of evil. But they as well as we have the assurance in knowing that these early adversaries and even those today in our our society will not and would not triumph. And it's a very stark reality of a final and actually you could call it a ceremonial disposal by God on the day of judgment. I think MacArthur talked about that pretty clear last week in one of his messages that, that... it's going to be a great display of the judgment of these false, these, these men, these certain men. But Jude's encouraging the beloved readers to contend and persevere for the faith with that assurance that God will take care of them, that he is going to judge them. He's going to bring them to the fullest of, of their, their reward of their judgment, what they've, how they've lived. But what does this licentiousness look like oh, do you have a question no it was just a statement referring to exactly what you had just been talking about a second ago and i just i find it and we'll see more and more as you're getting going in the next couple of weeks as well how relevant the the battles that they're having and that Judas directly writing to those believers are is very similar to to modern day with regard to false teachers and absolutely and i mean you're really going to get into some of the, the verses ahead which it paints a good picture of, of very similar struggles that false teachers bring right or issues that false teachers bring right now in, in the modern day church as well. Absolutely. So this isn't just something back then that we're right completely separate It's from. history, it's over with done. Yeah. We got new problems today. No, Here's I, I got I pulled this from a commentary and this this is great. This is an essence of what their thinking would go like. Is it not the essence of God's grace that he took care of our sins completely on the cross? True? If so, then how can there be any further penalty for sin? That's, that's the mindset, and that results in their actions, how they lived. Huh. Go out and get drunk. Commit all kinds of sexual immorality. Whatever. God's forgiven me. Does that sound familiar today? Just like Ryan said, yeah, this is all around us today. So they walked, I mean, this is Psalms 1-1. They walked in the counsel of the wickedness. That's how they lived. You're going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I'm noticing here, too, that really it it can all boil down to to those two things. licentiousness, a license to sin, or denying Christ. Uh, I mean, you're either going to fall in one of those two camps or both. Right. Yeah. God has essentially dispensed his grace and forgiven me. He's off doing his thing so I can go do mine. And it also, I think, adds to the master where he talks about denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These guys were thinking, oh, there's multiple ways into heaven. That type of thinking that Christ isn't the only way that I can I can serve and and hang out with these other gods as such. But but Jude, note that Jude doesn't describe all the doctrinal errors they're conveying. He's focused a great deal, and he examines a great deal about their lifestyle. What's coming out? How are they living? Not only not just in private, but what they're doing in the midst of the body too. And the pollution. Just think about how that would affect us if somebody was living like that, but proclaiming and wanting to be a member and part of this church. What would it do to us? The questions we'd look at, the concerns we'd have. How do we go to that brother? I don't want to give away the next couple of weeks, but you know we see that. What do we do? Just turn a blind eye? A 11, yeah, just uh, go about your thing. You know, God will, and we don't leave them up to the Lord, which I want to get away. <laughs> I'm going to get to the last verses here. I'm, be careful. But this this isn't a trivial matter. Christ's, God's church is a very precious, dear thing. I mean, this is why he came to bring about a bride, to bring about children of his own to himself. We are his inheritance. Yes, Tony? I just want to say that uh, in the modern days, it kind of looks like the teaching looks like no repentance. They would say, well, you don't have to repent because it's already done. It's kind of like that. Exactly. Exactly. That's what we're doing today. So from this brief, hopefully brief introduction, hopefully (laughs) too many rabbit trails, can you see what type of of arguments Jude is using? It's really just, this didn't hit me till this week after reading this. He's very strong, uh, a rhetorical procedure. He's really appealing to persuade his readers to adhere to these faiths, the truth the gospel that's been handed down to them. And the way we're going to see it next week is by disclosing the judgments, the sure, absolute, guaranteed, going to happen judgments by God for these that continue on like this. Now, is there still an opportunity for repentance and salvation? I can't answer that. We don't hear about that here. Could there be in our day and age Very likely so, by God's grace and his power, because it's not up to the will of man. It's not up to the will of our flesh. It's by the will of God and his spirit. And that's, I'm kind of getting ahead a little bit again here, but that's our duty. Yes. fight against that. Yeah. But like the easy believism while I'm in, God has is, is, is already accepted me. Very prevalent, yeah. And we yep. see it today where well, we have to contend also for the faith because it will easily creep in the next thing you know you're compromising. So. And that, that goes, that falls right in line to what has been handed down, the tradition of the faith that's been handed down. It's not a partial gospel. It's got to be a full gospel. God is holy and just. And that's why we have to repent is to turn from our sin to a holy God. Yeah, exactly. And when you leave that out, you create that atmosphere, that opportunity for licentious living. You just And you see that we're here today. I mean, look at the churches that are full of so many people that just even themselves the teachers who, you know, just they just hear what they want to hear. Yeah. They don't want to hear about hell. They don't want to hear about repentance. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's part of the, I don't want to say onus, the responsibility and call of the elders is to equip us so we can do that, not just to kind of filter, okay, how's everybody doing today? Okay, good, go about your business, but to continue to edify, train, and teach because we're, we're to be a congregation of, of good works because of what God's done in us, not to earn something from God, but to do an outpouring of what God has done in us. Yes, Chris. I think just going along with the point that you just made, like, in that being a responsibility of the elders, I'm so thankful, like, as this verse says, that the faith was handed down once for all. Yes. Right, so I'd just like to emphasize that fact, um, that the faith has been handed down, it's been inscripturated, you know, we don't have to come up with anything new, Right. and we should be weary of people who do. Exactly. You know, so... You got my closing arguments. Absolutely, that's... <laughs> that's it. I mean, that, that's... That's the preciousness, the once for all that's there, that God has given us everything we need, everything. And it's up to us. This is what I alluded to earlier. Grace is not laxity. You know, oh, man, I'm in. I'm done. I'm I made. I got my ticket, man. I'm here. No, pour yourselves into this. I want to know about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did for me so I can tell other people. You know, it's not about just, I got mine. You got yours? You know, Yes. And I think that would fall in line with historical theology in the way that, that we follow un- being orthodox in what has been handed down from the first century church all the way through um, through the early church fathers as well. Um, and that would give reason for a lot of the councils they had. They were contending for the faith to make exactly. what was handed down and, and battling those contending for those that were coming up with heresies. Right. Uh, That's why we had creeds. Yeah, and the yeah. confessions, yeah. exactly. Well, why don't we have any more counsels anymore? <laughs> 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 right? heard you say. <laughs> oh, yes, Rob. really get back with her husband next week um because I want to do exactly that contend because she's going around in my neighborhood spreading lies about about who God is who mm-hmm. God is Christ is Amen. Yeah. Therefore I want to you know love my neighbor in contending for the faith and telling them the truth. Um, and, and by God's grace, you know, like Pastor Chris just mentioned, it was already once for all delivered. Yep. Uh, it's not nothing I have to guess, I've just have to the scriptures. And may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you in doing that. Amen. I that's why he's praying. But one w- couple last comments. I Always wonder why didn't Jude get into more doctrinal stuff? Why didn't he really start you know, expounding. This was an urgent letter. I mean, he was was wanting to write an exposition about common salvation, but this was happening to a dear church. He wanted to get it out. There was an urgency in this, and this is why his use of of rhetoric was so strong of, hey, look, look, remember, contend, fight for this, because this stuff is going to pollute you. It's in your church now. The apostles warned us, guess what? It's here, and that's Like Ryan said, this is absolutely urgent for today. And just what, Chris, what you're saying too, a quote from Charles Big, he said, Jude's language about the faith is highly dogmatic, highly orthodox, and highly zealous. I mean, that's that's it. And I pray that we catch on to this as well so that we have opportunities. Maybe I should take my sign off my front door so they'll start knocking some (laughs) more. No handbills. Any any questions? Thank you. Next next week, Lord willing, we've got verses five through sixteen to cover. <laughs> so I'm figuring we'll start at noon. No. No. Thank you.